Welcome to Litigation Strategies, the podcast that discusses all things litigation, from filing a small claims lawsuit to closing arguments in a murder trial. We dive into handling a case from beginning to the end. Your co-hosts are Daniel Coble and myself, Joe Berry, former assistant solicitors for the Fifth Judicial Circuit and currently in private practice. We're pleased to have you with us, and now, this episode of Litigation Strategies. Welcome to Litigation Strategies Podcast. My name is Daniel Coble, your co-host, and with me as always, Joseph B. Barry. How are we doing, Joseph? Doing great. Although, are, are you the host? Am I the co-host? I don't know. I, you know are we both co-hosts? That's very generous of you, though. Well, you're you yourself a co-host. I've given you the title of co-host, and I've, I've out of sympathy, I've <laughs> out of seniority, though, I believe, you know, I've kind of taken the lead on this one. I'm just waiting for you to try to take the position. But so far, I've I've seemed to claim the title as co-host, lead co-host. But lead, lead co-host. OK. OK. You know, and, and especially for today's episode, we have a special episode. We're talking about homeless court. And Joe and I are, you know, very unique in a sense of we were the prosecutors for this program. And, you know, it reminds me of how. The older generation, they always tell the younger generation how they never had it as hard. They don't know what it was like. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to wow. tell you, Joe, since I was uh, before your time, that you don't know how easy you had it with homeless court. You don't know what I you went the through. Lead. I will grant you this. You were the lead, and, and you did not have shoes to, to walk through the, the snow or the heat, whatever it may be through. It was, it was harder for you, easier for me. It was a breeze. We um, had to walk five miles in the snow just to get to transitions to handle the court. You don't even know. We, you know, we're going to get into the process of how it got started and the, the behind the scenes. I won't get too much into it. That's, you know, when you're talking into a microphone, you don't want to say too much, but there was a lot of issues and it was a, a great experience. But let's just go ahead. Joe, why don't you, since you, sure. uh, you were with Homeless Court the most recently, since I haven't been there in a while, why don't you tell us what Homeless Court is and the process and everything involved? Sure. Homeless court and homeless courts generally are, are, are across the country in various jurisdictions. Columbia, uh, Richland County had the first one in South Carolina, thanks to, to many involved folks. And, and I feel like you have to mention George Cawthon first with Nelson Mullins and uh, Nora Rogers and, and Judge Dana Turner and, and, and many others. Um, and Dino Pinars, you always got to acknowledge Dino. But homeless court and started in, in Columbia here, Richland County in South Carolina, first court in South Carolina. And it was a, and is, still is, a diversionary court specifically catered and tailored for the, the homeless community or, or folks who are housing insecure charges, whether pending or, or prior charges that are, are really an impediment to getting back on their feet. And, but for those charges, you know, holding them back in some way. And homeless court is a, is a diversionary court, a way to basically get rid of those charges. And this is sanctioned and authorized by the state Supreme Court. It is a, a formal official court. And the, the idea there is to, to help do some good and provide a judicial structure that's, that's more workable, usable app for, for that community. Yeah, and that's right. And one of the, the better things about it, so diversionary programs are great. One of the issues you can run into with diversionary courts is that, you know, it's prosecutors where someone gets into a diversionary court and, you know, the victim is upset or somehow the person reoffends. And so it's so you take kind of a risk with diversionary programs. Homeless court, however, was kind of the inverse of it, where folks come to homeless court having already cleared up 
you know, the issues they have. They're transitioning out of a homeless lifestyle. They are getting a job. They are in NA or AA. They're getting housing. They're doing something and have already shown that they are qualified to be in this court. And then we help them clear up their charges. So, you know, it's there's not much work on the front end. You know, it's just a matter of someone showing to the court before they're even accepted how they've changed their life and why we should dismiss those charges or get rid of those fees and fines. Does that sound about right? No, that, that's exactly right. It's very unique in that that that, that respect. And so um, it's very productive. It's, it's great. It really is a wonderful, if, if you haven't ever heard of one, I encourage you to go to one. And if you're not in Columbia, I believe we've got more down in Charleston has one now and Myrtle Beach was working on one. Now, there's some impediments in Greenville, but um, trying to get them across the state because they are so effective. Well, and the, and the very first one was in, in South Carolina, was in Columbia. And that started back in 2014. They put together a committee to create a homeless court here in Who's South Carolina. They? Supreme Court? The, what's that? Who is they? You said they. You got to watch your pronouns. Who, they, to? Who is the they that put well, this it together? Was, I didn't get brought on until after the committee. And so the committee consisted of Nelson Mullins, Appleseed, the city of Columbia, the solicitor's office, the public defender's office, and maybe a few more. But that was kind of the core committee. And they said, how do we do this? And so they, they, it started, Homeless Corps was created back in the late 80s in San Diego by a public defender of the name of Steve Bender. And he created this over, you know, took many years to get it right, to get it down and kind of had the blueprint that the ABA followed and sent out there. And so come 2014, late 2014, we start meeting. And the the tough part about it is that everybody, we all want the same goal, which is reduce crime and help people and seeking justice. But there are different uh, sides to every story. So you got the prosecutor, you got the public defender, and you got the judge. And everyone kind of has their own territory and you know, who wants to give up what and who want, doesn't want to, you know, be on the hook for something. So, you know, talk about a fight. Everything was a fight for about that first year, which is fine. You know, luckily we had George Cawthon there to kind of be the middleman, to have the, to be the sense, to be reasonable and always explain that, you know, homeless court wouldn't be the same as it was. It would always grow as we fixed it. So it was just a matter of getting it started. So he kind of shepherded it to the beginning, but I remember some of those fights where it was, you know, the decision, would we dismiss charges? Would we only let in, uh, allow time served? Who would, the biggest fight ever was, who had the authority to let them in? Because the question was, was this a diversionary program or was this an alternative court? And so that wasn't a clear and concise question because if it's a court, then the judge controlled it more. If it's a diversionary program, the solicitor controlled it. And I remember a long, long weekends of peep of emails of, you know, who controlled it, who this and that. And luckily we worked all that out, but it didn't get worked out. Even the first, so the first homeless court we had was January of 2015. You know, we go into transitions, the homeless shelter down there on Main Street, and we walk in, it's packed full. There are about 10 cameras there. Then we got the client. And of course, I walk in with a big smile on my face. We're about to handle this. And of course, the public defender and the judge come over and there's an issue. Mm. And they wanted, and it was something where they wanted the case dismissed and we thought it was time served. And we are in the back room fighting. People are yelling. (laughs) But 
Well, you it's end up though. So time served is it stays on your record. You don't go to jail. You don't pay a fine. It, but it is on your record. Obviously. Stays on your record. This you can be expunged and, and, and exactly, exactly. So there was some issue about that, but you know, cooler heads prevailed, and we came to an agreement. And uh, the first lady went through, and it was in the newspaper. And it was a great story. But any program like this, creating it it's never easy as you think it would be because there's so many different sides to it. And so it took about a year to finally get that first court. And then after that, we put it on pause for a few months to kind of, you know, recalibrate and figure out what the process was, who's let in. And we always wanted to start small, you know, start with one or two and, you know, make it easy. And then we kind of expand from there. So we did that. So for- we'll let folks know then who is let in. So the per- there are some pretty, tight parameters. I think there's always a little flexibility, but the general idea is you're having crimes that are, quote, victim list. You can always find a victim somehow, some way, but yeah. these are not violent crimes. So yeah, so we all, we want to knives, no, no weapons, that. no violence. These are things like maybe public urination or trespassing. All municipal magistrate level charges. So yes. since we did it through the city of Columbia, it was municipal level charges. So those are 30 days. Uh, or $500 fines, anything less than, and victimless. So I think after I left, we expanded it to allow for potential victim crimes, but the victim had to be on board. They had to be notified and give permission and, you know, anything of that nature. But it was the, you know, so we handled shoplifting cases and, you know, we contacted the Walmarts, the Kmarts, the gas stations, whoever it may be to make sure they're on board. And usually no one had a problem because we said, Hey, look, you know, Jane Smith, you know, she was homeless when she did that. You don't see her anymore because she got her life together and she's at transition. She's at mercy. She's doing it. You know, she's got it together. You know, a lot of times victims, that's all they want. They just want the person to get better and, you know, not have to deal with or see them anymore. And so it was never an issue. It was never, you know, with the victims. And that was the most important thing, though, is starting small with these simple crimes, these simple stuff, just to clear their record. And and what we saw impediment to, you know, federal subsidies, for example, whether it's housing or student loan, there's the certain big, things you may be ineligible for based on what's on your record. That's absolutely right. We saw that a lot with jobs. A lot of jobs would say, hey, you you have a pending, you know, uh, ticket out there. You have a pending driving under suspension ticket and you have to have that cleared up before you can come work for us. Or one lady was the, the one that was probably the best and everyone in tears was she was about to become a nurse, but until she had the cases resolved, there's some pending stuff, she couldn't become a nurse. And so, you know, luckily we got it resolved. We got it fixed and she was able to get her uh, nursing license and, uh, you know, make significant money to help her transition out of that homeless lifestyle. Well, and you mentioned, you know, it's one of the challenges of, of working in a homeless community or, or in this population and there's there's a lot of stereotypes and, and preconceived notions about what's what's ho- who is a homeless person and you know there's kind of a stereotypical uh, person down by the river not smelling well or whatever it may be and and you know there's or aggressive on the streets or panhandling you know and, and there for sure are lots of people out there like that who may have some serious mental issues and other challenges and you also have folks who are you you wouldn't know looking at the person and whether it's a a homeless or housing insecure team. There's there are people who you know worked for years prior to something going wrong and, and life turns and all of a sudden they're just in a, a very very difficult and challenging situation. So it's, and remember when you brought that up, I remember having to fight over the definition of homeless because yeah. that was who's the other one. You had to we had to find the definition of homelessness because 
you have someone who is actually homeless at that point or someone, and I can't remember the exact phrase, but they're homeless, threatened, or or they're on the potential verge of being homeless. And so does that count? And so we, you know, we try to expand the definition as, as wide as possible to help folks who would help themselves. And, well, and I like to think when, by the time I got to, to, to run the court from the solicitor's office and, and, and after you guys have done such a great job getting it going, we were a little more loosey-goosey with the rules and there was a little less script. So we were really just trying to do the right thing and, and what made the most sense and what, what do we think was possible to do in the situation. And then we would do it. And that's where we, where we got to, but it was, it's hard to get there. And you guys did a great job getting us there because, you know, I think that one of the fears was early on is say, say you kind of create this, this, this special clemency, so to speak, for, for a person who, and if they then go commit a, an awful crime, you know, how does that reflect on the program? Could it shut the program down, hurt chances for others? You know, I think that was one of the early concerns and, and, and part of the, the concerns that out there keeping this from spreading to other municipalities. And that's speaking of that, I remember looking at after a year or maybe a year and a half, I checked the recidivism rate, both just who had been uh, rearrested and then also checking it with transition. And only one person out of either 20 to 30 I'm gonna, in that area had been rearrested just once, which is actually, you know, for... You know, someone in the homeless, you know, who's homeless in Colombia, you get rearrested a lot. So it was a significant, you know, positive impact when it came to recidivism and and saving money. And I ran a study. I mean, it was uh, running the numbers just to see how much it saved. And it was in the millions of potential dollars you could save by pulling these folks off the street right. and getting them a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance to get it right. And that's what, frankly, when you talk with business owners, you talk with people downtown, that's what they want. They want the you know folks off the street. They want them to get help. They want them to use the resources out there. And you know one of the big resources we got to we got to thank Mercy. They were very helpful and instrumental in bringing clients and being supportive. Appleseed. And we got to thank Dan Johnson and Dana Turner. It was it was always a fight, but they had a vision of making this happen. And they both, you know, they worked together. And you know sometimes I was in the middle of it. There was fighting, but there you know that's it was part of the process. You don't expect people to give up, you know, too much and you want to make it the best program ever. So they both, they work together and we eventually got this court because of them and their leadership. And even now under solicitor Byron Gibson, they've continued it. Our good friend, our leader, our mentor, Hans Bowling, <laughs> we got to get him on, get him on the pod and get, get, get his thoughts on homeless court. I know he's been instrumental because you know, he's enthusiastic about it. He enjoys it. And, and that's what you need is someone who enjoys it and kind of sees the, cause, cause it can be frustrating and it, well, you need that with a prosecutor anyway, you know, someone who enjoys it and wants to help and, you know, seek justice, but it's just from a different lens. That's, that's right. And, and there are so countless providers, you know, one, one thing I guess we haven't acknowledged is that so every time a, a client, an applicant applies, they have a social worker generally will have a social worker filling out an application on their behalf with them. It's not just vouching for them, but helping them shepherd them through the process to, kind of help establish that, you know, that track record of being on the right uh, path that, that's kind of verifiable and and to, to help get those people through. And so whether it's Mercy, Salvation Army, there's there's so many different groups and folks who, who over the years have, and they're still to this day. And United Way, you know, there's the Midlands Area Consortium for the Homeless that, that does such outstanding work in our community. There's just just really countless amount of folks who are, who are on the front lines working to help folks and just, just makes me think of them while we're, we're sitting here talking, you know, conveniently. I've got air conditioning. I don't know about you right now. I guess so it's, 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 you know, I'm comfortable and, and there's just so many people who, who aren't. So 
and there's some people who work and dedicate their professional lives to helping others. So it's yeah. Uh, I remember you you'd be surprised when people come in to they'd be coming off their shift, you know, working at a restaurant downtown, and they'd be coming into transitions where they were staying because they couldn't afford to go anywhere else. So you know, with that being said, we you know you mentioned Dino Constantinopoulos. He was very you know persistent and instrumental. And making it happen, a great resource. Tamika Divine was a great resource. There are a lot of folks out there, you know, who who made this happen, and we were just kind of lucky to be a part of it. Yeah. And with that being said, so we got homeless core. That's one yes. diversionary program. What a you know, it's important. I think these diversionary programs are kind of the wave of the future when it comes to criminal justice reform. It's just a matter of finding the right, you know, finding the right program to help folks. Um, who've made a mistake. You know, sometimes these programs are not compatible. They're not uh, suited for some individuals. But, you know, talk about some of the diversionary programs we got out there. Sure. And and to to stay, you know, we were both prosecutors. Obviously, you've now been a judge as well, particularly as as prosecutors, as I'm sure, you know, from the bench too. But, you know, it's not just about winning. It's about doing the right thing, right? And, and, And doing justice, whatever that may be, it's hard to determine. And as prosecutors, just so many cases come in, lots of cases and, and people that, you know, prison or jail or probation. I mean, it's just, there's tough choices to make. Um, and you don't get to just decide, you got to prosecute the case and, and quote, win the case. But, but so many times that the, the traditional punishment is not appropriate. So, so fortunately, there has been a proliferation of a lot of diversionary programs. You know, PTI, pretrial intervention, I think is one of the most common ones. Everybody's heard of PTI, I feel like, but you've also got Veterans Court, you had DUI Court, Drug Court, and there's a statutory youthful offender act, YOA option. Although, to get ahead, I feel like as a prosecutor, whenever someone went through a YOA, God, I was nine out of 10, nine out of 100, I feel like they're just getting set to fail. I feel like YOA is maybe really a great opportunity. But man, that was that was a tricky one, a loaded one. If you're if you're lining your client up to go into a YOA, you gotta. Uh, I hope that client is really changed or really not that person who committed the crime or whatever it may be. Because if they mess that one up, I feel like it's really set them up for failure. Yeah, YOA was tough. That was the the kind of the last resort, your last chance, and kind of an opportunity for more serious crimes that PTI might not be appropriate. So YOA was, a, it's a great resource, but you're right. It's, you know, it's your kind of last chance. And yeah. And that's what I was at six years, five years. If you don't basically go do some sort of probation, could be an intensive boot camp, could be suspended, but some sort of probationary, usually brief sentence. And then what well, up to six years or so, uh, as long as you are don't get in any trouble over the next six years, then everything can be expunged. But often what you happen on those is you're pleading in on a felony. So you might've pled in on some sort of burglary or whatever it may be, depending on what's eligible for the program or some sort of more serious crime. And if you have some slight mess up down the road in two, three years, now you've got that permanent felony on your record, which can come up impediments to, to jobs or, or loans or housing. I mean, those are, those are very real. So the, the YOA, I feel like as a prosecutor was, Man, I hope this works. Yeah, kind of a last chance. And PTI is the biggest one. And, and you know, you only get one PTI. You only get to use it once. And so down in magistrate court where I was, we saw a lot of, uh, we had PTI. You also had AEP, alcohol education program, yep. traffic education program. So help you get a, get a ticket dismissed. You had to do the online course. You had to stay out of trouble for six months. And the big one, which I really, I think is, and it's been expanded, is conditional discharge. Ah, so, yes, it's a drug because if you and I tell defendants when they would come plead before me that if they would want to plead to simple possession of marijuana, 
I'd say it's not as simple as pleading guilty and moving on. You know, you got to pay the $615. This is on your record. And if you get arrested again, you're going up to general sessions. And so it's a, and if, whether it's a pill or marijuana, whatever it may be, it was so very we have a, I guess we're not going to have a discussion on crackdown on marijuana. Are we not, are we going to talk about the, uh, no, I save that for another day, another time. You can, if you're listening to the podcast, on, uh, you can't see my face. You can't see my face right now, but one day, Joe, you and I will, we will record that for the whole world to hear our views on that, but that maybe we'll save that for another episode. How about season two? That sounds, I'm sure the world is looking forward to that. You know, so we'll something new that. about the marijuana debate. I'm sure we, we could, we could share that. And really, we'll put really that on season eight. Things. We're moving that down a little bit. Fair enough. Well, fair enough. Conditional discharge. It's a great opportunity because it gives a person a chance to say, Hey, I made a mistake. I'll stay out of trouble and I'll pass some drug tests. Well, back um, to strategies though. You're absolutely right. I'm just thinking back to my time as a prosecutor. And if you're a defense attorney and you're bringing a, a client in, you better make sure that client really doesn't, keep smoking or if they're in, in DUI court, if they're really ready to not drink because I mean, not to make a lot of the situation, but one of the, some of the funniest and craziest times in court, you're sitting there waiting on your time to go up in front of a judge for a plea or a motion. And some defendants brought in for a conditional discharge rule to show cause or whatever it may be. And judge ask them, or, or, have you used any drugs? They say, no. They say, okay, bailiff, go test the, test them, test her. And then all of a sudden the tears come out or the, the test comes I, back and it's all, I can't it's tell all the jail you, you go, my friend. I can't tell you how many times. So, so as soon as I sign someone up, I say, you got to pass, you know, two, three, six drug tests, whatever it may be. And I look, I say, can you pass? And they don't expect, I say, can you pass a drug test today? Yes. Yes. And then I say, okay, well, and then you say, okay, well, let's go, let's test you real quick. And they say, no, well, no, no. And so, and so I say, look, okay, you made a mistake. I'm not here to judge you for everything, but we'll give you 30 days before you get your first test. And I'll say, okay, 30 days, it needs to be out of your system. You know, we wait 30 days because we don't want to set them up for failure. We don't want to say we're testing you tomorrow. Um, and that's you know, the thing is be honest. For advice to the client is just, just be honest. If you can't pass the test, say that. You know, the vast majority of people involved in the criminal justice system, prosecutors, judges, public, I mean, people don't want you to fail. No, yeah. I mean, pe- pe- we, we want you to succeed. And yeah, so, and just be honest. So if you, if you can't pass it or, or, or if you need more time or if you're not ready, be honest. That, that's, that is, that is the um, best. And that's whether it's you're talking to a civil client going into a deposition. You know, how, how do I handle this? Just be honest, you know, uh, and, and same thing for this. So yeah, funny times back in the day when the, when the, uh, when the drug test comes out in court. There was a specific judge and we won't name him or her now, but I remember when they would uh, ask that question that. <laughs> they would send them to the back and, and sometimes they would go through the test and they would fail it. And that was, you know, if you go all the way through and then. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you gotta, yeah. Once, uh, don't, don't, call it, don't, don't bluff. Stop bluffing. You, you gotta be honest, as Joe said. So that's uh that's a great ending right there. Be honest as, you know, or, or plead the fifth, you know, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta be honest. Well, well, Joe, I enjoyed this podcast because homeless court is and diversionary programs that are important to our community, to our state, to the judicial system. And we're going to see a lot more of them. And one thing we will we'll leave it on this is um, potential mediation on the criminal side. You know, that's something that might that I know other jurisdictions across the United States have tried. You know, that might not be a bad idea to sit down with the prosecutor, with the public defender and with the judge or mediator and have them say, hey, that's a bad offer or that's a good offer. I don't know. That's just something I've heard before. And I think it would be a good idea to move some of these cases and make sure everyone um, is getting a fair shake 
and no one is taking advantage of, you know, particularly the prosecutor since they have the, you know, they carry the case forward. Just something to think about. So if any of your listeners have any or have ever dealt with criminal mediation, I think that could be a, you know, positive. Thing. Let me totally agree. And, and, and to make one, uh, one last plug before we close here, you know, the addition to homeless court, which I believe it was available to the public transitions and you can go and it's really a powerful movie experience to, to, to watch folks go through that. There's also a homeless clinic at transitions where, where lawyers, and if you're a lawyer listening and you need some pro bono hours, you, or, you know, go volunteer at the homeless clinic and go help counsel some folks who, who are in need of, of good advice and, and legal direction and, uh, and United Way, a great place to get involved too if you're looking for service opportunities. So. Well, Joe, as the lead co-host, I'll, I'll <laughs> one up you and I will let the viewers know that I will put the links for, for the homeless clinic for transitions, as well as a South Carolina lawyer article that George Coffin and Jennifer Wilson wrote explaining it. So I'll put all that in the links for people to click and check. And if they got any questions that, you know, all those resources that they need. But, but Joe, I appreciate it today. I enjoyed this episode and give us some final words. Don't lie in court. Make sure your clients never lie in court. Be honest. Thanks for joining us. Or leave the fifth. <laughs>